The reading today is from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This ends the reading of his word. So today uh, we're going to talk about confession and forgiveness. So I thought as a good opening activity, everybody can just form up single file line down the middle and you can come and confess your sins to me. Nobody's, oh, Morgan's going to go. Well, there comes Bell. Kidding, kidding. You don't have to do that here. Um, but I, I, I wanted to, I think it's good that we talk about confession and forgiveness, though. It's kind of one of those awkward topics I don't think we talk about often in church. Why do we confess? What, what's good about it? What, why, why does it help us? And why is it so essential in worship as we're going through this series on, on why worship? Why is it an essential element of why we gather and in our worship to God. Honestly, confession is not my strong suit. It's not something I come to naturally. Um, I used to work at a, at a job where I would deliver medical supplies, and I drove a van that was much larger than vehicles I was used to driving. And at one point while I was delivering, I was backing out my van to get back on the road, and I, I backed into a truck that was parked on the opposite side of the road. And like anybody does when they back into something, I looked around. Anybody, anybody see me? Anybody see me? And I thought, no. So I drove off. And as I was driving, I was like, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't good. I should, I should go back. So I did. I went back to the house, knocked on the door, confessed, said, hey, I work for so-and-so company, backed into your truck. Let's trade the information, and we'll get at that. So that was good. Made good with them. Went to work, back to work after delivering. I was like, i got to talk to my boss now. Ooh. So I went up to him and said, hey, like, I backed into this truck, but I stopped and gave him the info, and we traded. And he was like, yeah, thanks for doing the right thing. Like, that made it way easier for him, you know? So I was like, oh, Good. That's what confession should be, is that when we can confess what we've done wrong, when we can come before another person and say, hey, like, I messed up, it opens up those doors for forgiveness. 
It opens up the opportunity for us to be forgiven and to experience that more fully in our lives, and especially in our relationship with God. It opens up those doors that we can have a deeper relationship with God and that he can express his forgiveness for us. If I was to give you a sentence for the point today that hopefully we, we get to is that in worship, we confess our sins to understand the depths of God's forgiveness, to be reconciled with our neighbors, and to be free to do good works. So let's dig into these verses today and see where confession and forgiveness work into that and where God can speak more into our lives. So in the first three verses, Paul kind of lays out the bad news. And I think we need to get through the bad news about sin and the destructive forces that are in the world in order for us to properly hear the good news of forgiveness that God is offering to us. We need the bad news to be revealed or otherwise it's just normal. It's life. It's what we're used to. And so with, without it being revealed, we wouldn't know that there's anything wrong going on. So Paul opens the verse by saying that we were dead in our transgressions to sin. What does this mean? Why are, why are we dead in transgressions to sin? Where does this come from? Well, just go back to the beginning of your Bible. Genesis chapter 3 with the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. God says you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Adam and Eve ate from the tree, but they didn't fall dead on the spot. They were removed from access to the garden. They were removed from access to the tree of life. And death and sin became the reigning forces in their life as they were removed from access to the tree. Because our first parents failed to resist that first temptation, we've been repeating that choice in creative and innumerable ways ever since. Paul says we are now subject to the ways of the world. We're out of the garden, subject to those forces of sin and chaos. If you read Psalm 1, there's a spin on it. Paul says it's like we're following the advice of the wicked. We're taking the path that sinners tread or we sit in the seat of scoffers. These are the ways of the world. This is normal. This is how things work. Get used to it. This is the best it's going to be. Without us seeing that this is the bad news, that's how we'd go on continuing to live the rest of our lives. Paul says we're also subject to this ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who is this mysterious ruler of the kingdom of the air? He's the ruler of the space around us. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, says... Here again, he means that Satan occupies the space under heaven and that the powers are spirits of the air under his operation, for that is his kingdom is of this age. So this ruler of the kingdom of the air is, is Satan, the accuser, the one who's always out to trip us up, to point at us and say, you can't ever do it right. You're wrong. You can never live up to the standard. He always wants to point out the failures in ourselves and to God. Sometimes I think, though, it can be hard to think of Satan in the traditional sense. Pitchforks, little demons running around, poking and prodding us into, like, bad situations. But there are forces around us that cause us to sin and cause us to stumble. You might call them today powers like addiction, violence, selfishness, racism, greed, apathy. The list could go on and on of the things that cause us to stumble into sin. 
I think it's important to understand that Paul points out it's the kingdom of the air, which is distinct from heaven. He is the ruler over the space around us here on earth, and that is his limit. He has no authority beyond that, and it's the time that he has the authority is limited. It is limited to this space and this age and this present age. Paul also says we are subject to gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Ooh, that sounds fun. Sometimes what I think deep down is honestly not the best thing for me. That's what Paul is getting at. Those deep desires and cravings that you have in their heart. Sure, some of them are good, but not all of them. Last week for lunch, I had instant ramen noodles. And later the same day, I had Burger King for dinner. My 13-year-old self was super proud of my decisions that day. But my older, more thoughtful self said, oh, that probably wasn't the best choice I could have made. These are the ways of the old self, the old creation that God is constantly trying to renew and redeem and restore. Those bad choices that you make inside when you know there, there is another option. When we are confronted with this bad news, with the things that we are subject to, we understand the depths of how far we have moved away from God and our desires and our neighbors and our friends. So what are the potential responses? I think the Bible gives us some examples. Again, if you go back to Genesis to the beginning, when confronted with their own sin, when God says, where are you, Adam and Eve? What, what did you do? Well, they blame shifted. Eve says, or Adam says, the woman made me eat it. It wasn't my fault. God says, oh, Eve, what happened? She says, the serpent made me do it. Not my fault. That's what we do sometimes. We try to shift the blame onto other situations or things, taking it off of us so we don't have to feel guilty. Another response comes shortly after. Cain kills his brother Abel, and God says, what, what happened? What did you do? Cain basically says, ah, so what? I don't care. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my job to worry about that? But the right response comes later in the Bible. David, when confronted by the prophet Nathan after his relationship with Bathsheba and having Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed, Nathan confronts him and points out that he's sinned. He's done wrong before God. David doesn't blame shift. David doesn't say, so what, and move on. David falls on his knees, cries out to God, asks for forgiveness, asks for God's mercy. He writes Psalm 51, which says, Has mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me of my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. When we gather for worship, when we come here today, when we have the curtain revealed before us of the bad news and what's wrong with the world, we are being graciously and mercifully led to realize how much we need help, how much we need relief, how much we need salvation, and how much we need forgiveness. Paul writes here that all of us also lived among them at some time. Paul's not pointing out specific people or specific outsiders saying, oh, they're the ones doing all the bad stuff. It's only those bad people you see on TV. They're the ones who really need forgiveness. You're okay. No, Paul includes everybody. He includes himself in this. Everybody needs to hear this story of what's wrong with the world. 
when we acknowledge our sins and confess them before God, this is foundational to worship. This is why we are here. Not that God needs to hear about our sins. He knows. He knew what Adam and Eve did. He knew what Cain did. But there's something about us being able to communicate that to God honestly and with our whole heart. It's the first steps that we take in our relationship with God to open up the doors of our hearts, to hear the good news, to open up to, what the, to the mercies that God is wanting to give us. One of the founding Presbyterian confessions is the Scots Confession. Scott is in Scotland or Scottish. And in, in it, it's written, But the sons of God do fight against sin. They do sob and mourn when they perceive themselves tempted to iniquity. And if they fall, they rise again with earnest and unfeigned repentance. And these things they do not by their own power, but by the power of the Lord Jesus, without whom they are able to do nothing. So in the confession is reinforced confession of our sin. And that it's not of our own power that we come before God to do it, but it is by God revealing to us and lifting us up so that we can see what is wrong with the world and with ourselves. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God doesn't leave us there to wallow in our own sin and suffering. Paul continues in verses 4 through 7. And I've already read it earlier, but I'm going to read it again. And as I read it again, I want you to listen to what God is telling you. What God is telling us through what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. It says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the good news after the bad news. This is the amazing grace we just sang about. Left to our own devices, the bad news is really bad. But like this verse opens up, but because of his great love for us, God. Not somebody else, God. The lavish gift of God is our complete and utter forgiveness. I hope you heard the words in there as I read it. Great love, rich mercy, incomparable riches. This isn't just a simple forgive and forget situation. It's a complete renewal and doing away with the old life so that we can step into and spaces made for us in this new life. When we confess in our awareness for sin, we can begin to understand the depths of grace that Paul is writing about here. In these few verses, we are shown through the forgiveness and rich mercy of God that first we are made alive in Christ. This is counter to what Paul says, us being dead in our transgressions. We have new breath filling our lungs. We have a new spirit in our hearts. We are being raised to live a new, different, and better life. Paul also says we are raised up with Christ. This is uh, counter to his point of living according to our own passions and desires. We're not living in the ways of the old world. We're living a new life, a new creation. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new is 
here. Paul also says we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. This doesn't quite feel like heaven. What's going on here? This is a weird mystery. I think it'd be nice if we were in heaven, but here we are. But what Paul is pointing out is that our forgiveness in Christ gives us a better perspective on things. That old way, the old life, the ways of the world are revealed because we are given a perspective that's higher than that. We can see beyond. We can see behind the curtain. We can see the man like in the Wizard of Oz pulling everything and putting on the great show. We see the better picture when we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's like we get to watch the trailer of a movie before the movie. Whenever we can go back to, anybody remember going and sitting in a movie theater? The previews that would happen before it, you see the little hits and points of the movie that gets you excited for the movie that's coming. That's what we're in right now. We get taste of the heavenly realms. We get to see what's going on. And that encourages us in our confession and reminds us of our forgiveness. Paul also says we become aware of the incomparable riches of his grace. This is counter to his point that we are deserving of wrath. Yes, we deserve wrath, but we are offered innumerable, incomparable, and vast riches of grace. Last week, Mike talked about and gave the image of God's blessing in our lives as like Gatorade being dumped on a coach after winning a game. I'm more of a food guy than a sports guy, and for those keeping track, this will be my second food illustration for my sermon. One of my favorite restaurants, Red Robin. Why? Endless fries. You don't even have to ask. They just keep bringing them. Some of my other favorite restaurants are the seemingly dirtiest, greasiest diners you could walk into. Why? Unlimited coffee. You don't even have to ask again. They just keep bringing it. One of my favorite places in Sacramento is called Pancake Circus. You will take your life into your hands walking into that restaurant. But once you're in, you are offered immeasurable and innumerable amounts of coffee like you've never thought of in your life. Oh, I see your cup's half full. Would you like more coffee? Oh, you've only taken one more sip. Would you like some more? Just keeps coming. I'm reminded in scripture of Psalm 23 that my cup overflows with coffee. In researching for this sermon, I was reading a commentary by N.T. Wright um, in Paul for Everyone. He says, whenever anyone says or implies that God is after all a bit stingy or mean or small-minded, look at these verses and think again. Worship then should lead us to not only become aware of our sins so that we might confess it, but to also realize the but God part of this verse. The but God element in light of our sin and knowing that we are abundantly, lavishly, and eternally forgiven. And once we realize that, this opens up a new door of opportunities in our lives, which is what Paul gets to next. Verses 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Released from our previous captivity to sin, we're now free to do the good works God has intended for us to do since the beginning. 
Not works, Paul points out, that bias into salvation, bias a better seat in heaven, get us some advantage over somebody else, or that we even have to work for it so hard in ourselves because we could never attain it. No, it is God's work. Paul says we are God's handiwork. This comes from the Greek word poema, which is where we get our word poem or poetry from. Through God's mercy, we are like a new poem. We are a new work of art, an expertly crafted, formed, and labored over work of beauty. We are free to work and worship like Adam and Eve were supposed to from the very beginning. One of the greatest examples of, I think, this good work that we are asked to do after being forgiven is the work of reconciliation. This is the greatest work we can do in this world and through worship to take the forgiveness that God has offered to us that we have realized and take that out with us into the world. Jesus encourages this in the Gospel of Matthew. He gives this illustration in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go and be reconciled, then come back and offer your gift. If your neighbor has something against you, Jesus says, you go and rectify. Your offering is less important than the reconciliation and forgiveness you need to do. You being here in worship is less important than going and fixing that situation with your neighbor. And you're not to wait for them to come to you, Jesus says, if you've, he doesn't say, if you've been wrong, just wait. They'll come. No, it's you. You go and be rectified with your neighbor. You might need to do some confessing. They might need to do some confessing. But either way, when we go and do the work of reconciliation, we open up the acts of confession and forgiveness that we talked about earlier to realize what God has offered us then we can then offer to the world. Then, like Jesus says, when we have reconciled with our neighbor, we are ready to truly worship God, unhindered and free. And hopefully, because you've restored the relationship with your neighbor, you get to bring them with you. And we all get to celebrate and enjoy the worship and the forgiveness that God is offering together. One of the most powerful phrases we've learned in our marriage, myself and Courtney, is the story I'm telling myself is. Now, when we, the way we would use this is that there's something weird going on. We don't really feel like things are right. One of us might just say, the story I'm telling myself is, I think you're upset with me because I didn't do the dishes because you're quiet. And maybe the person would just say, I'm not mad at you. I love you. I'm just really tired. It's a way for us to kind of confess what we're feeling, to open up the, the lines of communication and not just go on assuming that the bad is bad and it's going to continue to be bad forever. When we can say, this is, uh, this is how I feel, the other person can say, nope, nothing's changed, I love you. Or if there is something wrong, now we can talk about it and figure it out. And we can get to the real true story that God wants us to hear of forgiveness. And we can be reconciled in our relationship. 
In these verses, we get caught up often in verses 1 through 3. We get caught up in the bad news, the bad. Everything's bad. Nothing's going to change. We can't get over it. I'm this way. I'll never change. This is the story we often tell ourselves. But God wants us to tell ourselves the story in verses 4 through 7. The story of God, that God is shouting out to us through Jesus that he loves us, that he's forgiven us, that he wants to dump mercy and grace on us like a bucket of Gatorade, where he wants to keep our cup full like a cup of coffee. Why do we worship? Why are we here? We worship to confess our sins, to understand the depths of God's forgiveness so that we might be freed to do the good works that God has planned for us from the beginning. We're here to hear the better story, and we're here to go tell the better story. Let me pray. God, I thank you for my friends who are here today, that we get to gather and to worship, to learn about these very important elements of confession and forgiveness, and what that can mean in our lives, and our relationship with you, and our relationship with others. I pray that as we go out from here, we would, we would live into that forgiveness and mercy, and not hoard it and keep it to ourselves selfishly, but offer it abundantly and lavishly to the world, like you have offered it to each and every one of us. I pray for all of my friends here that you would, you would keep them safe, and bring us all back together again. I ask this in your name. Amen.